0: Amen. So yes, this morning as we begin this Advent season, we are going to meditate together on what I think is one of the most astonishing passages of Scripture that we have, John chapter 1 verses 1 to 15. And we are going to sit in this passage for the whole of Advent. Now one of the reasons that we're looking at John 1 over Advent is while the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke will tell you the facts about Christmas, sort of what happened at the time of Jesus' birth. You know, you have the shepherds and the angels and the baby in the manger and all of that stuff. John chapter one doesn't begin with any of those things. What John is concentrating on in his gospel is rather what all of those things mean. What does it all mean that Christ has come? Uh, So not so much what happened at Christmas but what Christmas means. And so we'll start this week and through this short series, I hope that it will take us you know, as we go all the way through to Christmas, into a new experience of what Christ- Christmas means as it was intended. I pray that we'll get out of this season uh, what is most important for us to focus on at Christmas time. So today we're going to look mostly just at verses one through five. So if we go to the next slide, that would be awesome. We're going to look at verses one through five. But before we do that, I want to set out some of the context for this chapter for just a moment. Uh, John chapter 1, as many commentators have pointed out, is intended to be read as a kind of overture. So if you go to a musical or if you go to a, a, a theatrical performance, usually at the beginning of the performance there'll be a piece of music which gathers up all of the various songs that you're going to hear at the rest of the performance. So any Sound of Music fans in the house? Anyone? What's your favorite song? Come on. Yes? of my favorite things, Edelweiss. So we've got a few Edelweiss winners. Not the title song, come on, The Hills Are Alive. Um, So if you watch The Sound of Music, you'll notice that during the opening credits, all of those various songs that you're going to hear later on are captured in a very brief uh, form in the the opening piece of music. Uh, And John 1, really, verses 1 to 15, or through to 1 to 18, actually, Um, Is very much the same and here are just a few of the key things that John mentions in these verses uh, Some of his favorite things as it were uh, That he will then go on to unpack throughout the rest of his gospel. So next slide if we could go to Sorry, keep going. Sorry That's it. Thank you. Here are some of the words that you heard uh, during this reading this morning beginning or word a word or logos with or to be with or even to abide. God, created, life, light, darkness, witness, sent, world or cosmos, receive and not receive, believe into, have faith in other words, authority, children of God, born again of God, flesh, dwell, which is this word that means to tabernacle um, or literally pitched his tent. He pitched his tent among us. To behold glory, the Father, the only begotten Son, fullness, grace, truth, law, seen, known or revealed. Those are the words that you just heard in the reading this morning, which John is then going to pick up on all the way through the rest of his gospel. So I guarantee you, if you then go this afternoon and read through the gospel of John, you will see how over and over and over again, he picks up on all of those words and unpacks them, explains them, reveals the depth of them to you in in the light of the coming of Christ. And so take John 3.16, for example, which is part of... A conversation that Jesus has with the rabbi Nicodemus. Uh, You must be born again, says Jesus, and for God so loved the world, or the cosmos, that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes into him will not perish but have everlasting life. There's just one example of a way of the way in which John will gather up all of these different words and reintroduce them to us and explain them to us over and over and over again. That's why many people call this an overture. The prologue to his gospel gathers up kind of everything that Jesus came to do and in these few short verses has just opened up an incredible vision to us of what is coming. Um, So what you'll see then, uh, what's interesting then about this chapter, um, this index of subjects, there's one really important exception to what I've just said. So we're told at the beginning of this passage And at the end of this passage that Jesus is the what Jesus is the word he is the word in the beginning was the word and this is the Greek word logos and what's interesting is that John unlike all the other words that we just saw on the screen John only ever uses logos here in chapter 1 and then he never again uses that word in the rest of his gospel which has caused more than a few biblical scholars to kind of scratch their heads. What's going on here? Now, to understand this, we have to notice the explosive claims that John is making in these opening verses. By comparison, you know, in Matthew's gospel, he traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham. And then in Luke's gospel, Jesus' lineage is traced back to Adam. But in John's gospel, he goes even further back and says, in the... Beginning, so John traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to the beginning, or even before the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's a unique and theologically explosive opening. So John is telling us a couple of things. Number one is that Jesus is divine. This Word was both with God and was God. So he's not just a wise man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a spiritual guru. He's not just enlightened. He's not just operating at a higher level of consciousness. He hasn't just aligned all his chakras. He was and is God. And the second thing that John is telling us is that Jesus isn't just God, he's also the creator. In the beginning was the word, taking us back to creation, Genesis one, and then, verse three, through him, All things were made, without him, nothing was made that has been made. So all of creation has come from Jesus. He was not only there at the beginning, he is the creator of all things. And even more, John goes on to say he is life. God has life in himself, Christ is life. In him was life, John says, which is to say that every person on this planet draws breath, only because of Jesus, only because Jesus lives, because Jesus is life and he sustains every living thing by his powerful word. In other words, he is the sustainer. And he says, he is the light. When God created the universe and said, let there be light, that light is the light of Christ. What is that light? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we did a very short series on the book of Proverbs. And the Hebrew people thought of this light that was the first of God's creative acts, thought of this light as wisdom. Uh, this is what is unpacked in the book of Proverbs. And that's the Hebrew words. Anyone remember what it was? You have gotta say it right in the back of your throat. Hachma, wisdom. And for the Jewish people, this idea of wisdom or chachma was the principle of truth. And beauty that undergirds everything, that brings meaning and order and creativity. It's the basis of science and of arts and architecture and music and morality. It's what they thought of as the grain of the universe. If you remember when we talked about this, to live a wise life is to live in accordance with the grain of the universe, with the way that God has established the universe to function. Now, the Greeks and Romans had a very similar idea to this. Except they didn't call it wisdom. They called it, guess what? They called it the Logos. And there's another word that they had for word, which is Lexi. But the Logos is a philosophical idea. And the print, it's this principle of reason that kind of flows through everything in the world. Bringing meaning and order. Now, it definitely wasn't thought of as a personal thing. As something that you could know in relationship. It was more like a force, kind of the force that flowed through everything and held everything together and brought rationality. It was kind of more, we would sort of say in, in our thinking now that the Logos is akin to rationality or reason. What is reasonable, what is logic, what is logical, right? So again, definitely not a personal thing, it was more like the natural law or the principles of science. But John says that this Logos isn't just an impersonal force but was God and to which the Greeks of the day might have said, "Ah, maybe, kinda, guess you could think of it that way. But then to say in verse 14, and the Logos took on flesh and came among us would just be mind blowing to them, would just be completely, a very totally different way of thinking about how the world works and about what, what God is like. So it would have been bizarre to them. And what I want you to see here this morning is what John is doing when he's doing this. He's actually being incredibly intelligent and incredibly wise, because what he has just done in a few verses, he has managed to introduce the gospel in a way that is able to speak to both his Hebrew and his Gentile, his Greek and Roman audience. It's incredible. In two or three verses, he's been able to gather up some concepts that can speak to both his Hebrew listeners and his Gentile Greek and Roman listeners. So to those who know the Torah, he can communicate to them, and to those who have no concept of the Torah at all, he can communicate to them as well. He's using words and concepts that would be familiar to both, but he's also challenging and transforming them in a way that is surprising to his audience. He's doing, in other words, the work of an evangelist, Right, he's contextualizing his message to help his audience understand what the coming of Christ into the world means. He's using language that connects and then he's beginning to introduce new concepts that transform those ideas that they were already familiar with. He's trying to help Gentiles grapple with the question of why a Jewish Messiah, of all things, why a Jewish Messiah could have anything relevant to say to a Gentile audience. Why would we care about a Jewish Messiah? What, what interest would we have in a guy who went around Israel and was nailed to a cross by the Romans? What point can there be for us to listen to someone like that? And what John is trying to do is help his audience understand why it is so important that they listen to the message of Jesus, even though he was a Jewish Messiah. Why should they care? That's what John is trying to help them understand. And I wonder how you would begin to describe Jesus to those who've never heard of him. How would you begin to connect some of those ideas? It was awesome hearing from Luke this morning and just within the sports space, you know, finding language that connects with people who play sport and helping people understand how Jesus might be relevant to them. This is what evangelists do. This is what people who are trying to help others encounter Jesus do. They do the hard work of trying to figure out how can I, how can I take some concepts that they might be familiar with and then begin to load them in with meaning that will help them to encounter Jesus. So you take something that people know and you start to connect the dots to some things that they may not yet know. And that's exactly what Paul does uh, in Acts 17 when he's preaching to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. He takes ideas from their own philosophies in order to connect the gospel to some ideas that they're already familiar with. Uh, the great missiologist Leslie Newbigin says that this is the inescapable problem of the missionary or the evangelist. You must begin by using words which have some meaning for your hearers. You, must, you begin by assuming some common framework of language, of experience, of tradition. You can only introduce what is new by provisionally accepting and working with what is already there in the minds of your hearers. So I think Jesus now, by, by John drawing in this idea of Jesus as the logos, yes, he is the logos is what he's saying, but he's so much more than the logos, uh, which is why John uses this word here to kind of get the conversation started, as it were, and then never uses that word again to describe Jesus, because there are actually so many other words that are so much better for us to use to describe Jesus, and we have heard some of those already this morning. He is our wonderful Counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our Prince of Peace. Or well, what's your favorite way that Jesus is described in the New Testament? Here are some of the other ways that Jesus described: that He's the Great Physician. Right? Does that mean Jesus is a doctor? No, He is. They take a concept that the people would have been familiar with, and then they transform it. He's the Great physician. He is the good shepherd. He's the savior. He's the redeemer. He's the king of kings. He's the lamb of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Um, Or the one that John hints at here in his prologue, Jesus is the light of the world. As he once said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so, so many ways to talk about Jesus that are better than this kind of impersonal concept Of the logos and that's the genius of what John is doing here Um, and it's one of the most important aspects of his prologue or overture that Jesus Jesus is being revealed to us by John here in a way where the impersonal becomes personal where the unknowable becomes knowable where the untouchable becomes flesh and blood and dwelt among us the God who dwells In unapproachable light whose power and whose glory are greater and so much more awesome than we could ever possibly imagine has come close to us he has entered into our reality he has looked at us face to face he's taken on flesh he's revealed himself to us not only with words written on a page or a law transmitted by a prophet but As John says, we have beheld, we have seen his glory face to face, the glory of the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you believe in him, John says, if you believe in him, you will receive his truth and his grace. You too will become children of God, born of God. That's the promise. You too will be born of God. God God will do a new creative work in your life. He will reveal himself to you in a way that will change you forever. And so in verse five, John does something then that is relatable for everyone. Here is where he helps his audience understand the question of why Jesus. Okay, why Jesus? What's the point of all this? Why should I believe in a Jewish Messiah? John writes, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Now everyone here experiences the darkness. Now not everyone will experience wealth, not everyone will experience a good family or a meaningful career or even a great degree of happiness. Some people do, many do not. What is the universal human experience? It's darkness. At some point, everyone faces pain or loss or grief. Everyone. But here's the thing. That John is telling them, especially his Greek audience. You know, the Logos, this impersonal concept, it doesn't care about whether you suffer or not. It has no concern for you whatsoever. You know, your gods, they don't care if you suffer or not. Maybe if you're especially devout, they might help you. Who knows? But I tell you, there is one God who cares. There is one God who does not participate with the darkness. There is one God who is the opposite of the darkness in every way possible. There is one God who is not subject to the darkness because he is the light and he is the life. There is a God who cares and that is the one we worship. And if you come to him, if you listen to him, if you welcome him, if you believe into him, then you too will find power to overcome the darkness. See, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness is there. We all know that. The darkness is terrifying. The darkness seems to swallow up everything in the end. But I tell you, friends, the good news, that no matter how powerful the darkness may seem, the darkness has not overcome Jesus. It tried to, it threw its worst at him, but it did not prevail, it did not win. The central confession of our faith is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. And that is why Jesus can say, the darkness is a thief that comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. You know the rest of this, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. That's a way of saying, I haven't just come to manage the darkness. I haven't just come to manage it. I've come to end it. I haven't just come to manage it, to kind of limit its boundaries. I have come to put it to bed forever. All right, I'm running out of time here. Point is, friends, in the light of the coming of Jesus, what does Christmas mean? It means that although there's a lot of reasons that we should be afraid, the coming of Christ at Christmas means that we do not need to live in fear. We do not have to give in to the darkness that is at work in the world. We don't have to try and build a life for ourselves on our own. Because John tells us that Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. Nothing was made except what has come through him. So he is the one, friends, who holds our lives together. And there are so many passages about this. Hebrews 1.3, he is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is sustaining your life, moment by moment, breath by breath, so that even when life is hard, we can choose to live with joy We can choose to live with faith because Christ is with us and even more, Christ is holding us and he will hold us to the very end forever and ever. Amen. So in him, as Paul says to the philosophers in Athens, in him we move and have our being. You are here, friends, because Christ has willed it. Your whole life is a gift from Jesus. Everything you are, And everything you have is a gift from Jesus. He is the creator of all things. Everything you are, everything you have, and everything you will have forever and ever is a gift from Jesus. He is your creator, and He is your sustainer, and He is your savior. And if God the Father, and this is kind of the key idea of John 1 really, if God the Father is like Jesus, because Jesus is the revelation of who God is, of what God is like, then we, as we read through the gospel and we see how Jesus treats people and we see how Jesus loves people and we see how Jesus heals people and we see how Jesus restores the brokenhearted and we see how Jesus lifts up the weary and gives hope to those who've lost all hope, if we see that in Jesus, that is telling us that that is what God is like. And so friends, we can be sure that if we humble ourselves and believe into Jesus and follow the Lord that he reveals to us, we can be sure that he's not out to trick us. He's not out to ruin our lives. He will do what he has promised. He will save us, he will forgive us, he'll restore us and he will hold us forever. There is not gonna be a day that we live where Jesus is not holding our lives together. There's not gonna be a day that we will live forever and ever in which we have not received as a gift from Christ. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up and we're gonna get ready for communion this morning. Why did God do all of this? Jesus said himself in chapter six, John chapter six, verse 29, this is the work of God, to believe in the one whom he has sent. This is the work of God, to believe in the one whom he has sent. So think about it. This is what the creator of the universe wants for you. This is his work, that you might know Jesus, that you might believe in him, and that you might experience with every fiber of your being, that he is your life, that he is your light, that he is your truth, that he is your grace, and that he is your sustainer forever and ever. Amen. And all you have to do is say yes to the God who in Christ Jesus has already said yes to you.